0: Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. All right. All right. Um, You know, it's interesting on the church calendar, and and by interesting, I mean sad, uh, that Mother's Day is usually the second most attended service on the calendar. Father's Day is one of the least. Moms want to get their kids in church. Dads want to go golfing. If... If that's you, you are in the wrong place today. (laughs) Because I hope by next year that Father's Day and in future subsequent years till Jesus comes, the Father's Day is one of the most attended and best attended days on the church calendar. Um, It's going to be hard to to listen to this message and not realize what God is trying to do through the men in the family of God. I want you to go ahead and turn to 2 Kings uh, 21. I want to look in that passage, but I'm also going to be looking at uh, quite a few others in this general vicinity. So you might want to leave uh, your Bibles open. If you're a dad, we want to honor you today. We have a gift for you. It's by the left-hand door. If you didn't grab one on the way in, make sure you grab one on the way out. Uh, We want to make sure that we honor you today. Let's go ahead and read together 2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem. Fifty-five years. That's the longest any king ever reigned over Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal, and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we honor honor you today as our Father, and we thank you for the gift that you have given us in the relationship that you modeled with your Son, Jesus Christ, which I pray, Father, over every dad in this house today. Lord God Almighty, we know that it's not just our own children, but the children of the generation coming behind us that you have called us to model fatherhood to. We ask in the name of Jesus that this would be done, that your word would be an instrument to accomplish your purposes and further them in our lives, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I uh, put up on social media yesterday a picture of my dad serving in Korea in 1952, and um, one of the one of the things that I that I think about when I when I think about my dad is just because of the happenstance of it. All of I have uh, four siblings, and they all seem to know my dad a lot better than me because. My older siblings were considerably older than me and lived with them, you know, their, their whole lives as, until they became adults. Uh, my younger brother uh, was still in the home when my parents remarried. My parents were divorced for a good number of years. Most of my formative years, my parents were divorced, and they got back together after I was, I think, 20 years old. And my brother was, younger brother was still in the home and, and stayed there through college. So I really didn't get to know my dad very well. He wasn't present in my life. And when I came to Jesus Christ, uh, I was 20 years old and God sent into my life three men that served as spiritual fathers to me. And I learned the, not, I, I, the to use the word value is, is too diminishing a word, uh, the necessity of those kind of relationships. Where there were men in my life modeling, because I had no idea how to be a, a husband. I had no idea how to be a father. My dad wasn't present. He was born the day the stock market crashed in 1929. And really really imparted into me was that a dad's responsibility was to just provide financially for his children. And that, that was his understanding of the role. So I didn't have any understanding of what it, what it looked like to be a biblical husband or father. And the men that God sent into my life very early on in my walk provided that understanding it's much better I was I was actually doing an interview we, we hired a couple of people this week and I was doing an interview and the person that we were hiring for the position had actually done the same position or a very similar one at another church and I said to her that's uh, uh, to me so valuable that you see what it's supposed to look like because I can train people how to do a job but actually seeing and understanding it just instinctively reflexively what it's supposed to look like is something I can't can't pay for and so when I'm speaking of, of biblical uh, fatherhood and I'm talking about the model, it, if you had a dad that modeled that to you, that showed you how to worship, that showed you how to pray, that showed you the meaning of, of humbling yourself before the word of God, submitting to it, serving the body of Christ, you are so far ahead because you already understand what it looks like but I want to speak to, to you who, who maybe you didn't have that. Maybe you're the first generation coming into the church. And maybe you've never grasped, maybe your, your, your mom or your dad wasn't that serious. They were, they were nominally Christian, nominal believers. And maybe you are the first person to say, you know what, I really want to go after, go after Jesus Christ. The story that we're going to be looking for it, it, at is a story of four generations. We pick up this passage here in the last generation of the existence of Judah before the exile. And being that this is Father's Day, I want us to look at what was happening generationally that caused the people of God to fall into the judgment of God. Now Manasseh was the son, as you just saw in the text, of a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was known as a generally good king, but he fostered an attitude of complacency toward that which he should have been vigilant about. You remember Hezekiah is the one who had the shadow go back the 10 steps and got this miracle. Well, the Bible says that he did the, the will of the Lord, but later on in his life, he was confronted about an act of prideful foolishness and how it would impact the people of God. And the prophet tells him, you know, some of your own children, some of your grandchildren, your descendants are going to be taken into captivity because of what you have done. And his response was to this prophet, the word of the Lord is good. Now that sounds right, right? No matter what, the word of the Lord is good. Even if it affects me negatively. But the Bible says, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? That's why the word of the Lord was good to him. Not because God is sovereign and God could do anything He wants. But since this won't affect me, since I'm going to be in the grave before all this stuff happens, the word of the Lord is good. It's complacent. And so the first truth I want to communicate here is that the actions and attitudes that we communicate can, can reveal conflicting realities to our kids. The next generation that comes behind us, whether they're our own children or the spiritual children that God brings into this church, the next generation is getting its cues from us. Now, how many know there is a difference between aspirational values and lived values, right? You go into somebody's home and it goes in, you know, we have one of these signs in this home. We live together. We laugh together. We love together. And you're like, man, you a liar because you guys throw stuff at each other. You're like, like yelling at each other. See, that's the difference between an aspirational value and a lived value. Manasseh got instructed one way by his dad's values, but another way by his dad's complacency. In other words, his dad taught one thing, but when the chips were down, his dad was complacent about the things of God. I tell church kids sometimes, you may need to do some house cleaning because sometimes moms and dads, we too often get careless with the sacred, right? We don't recognize that. And I've had people say that, and if that's you, I'm not trying to beat up on you, but I've had people come in and they'll say, hey, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry I miss worship, but I get here for the important part. Like that's gonna stroke my ego, like my preaching. I'm like, Worship sets the stage because people behind you, people around you, younger people are watching how you worship. They're watching whether you just, you know, like, like mumble along or whether you're just waiting for the the thing that you came to see or whether you really came to reverence God. I always want to teach my kids to reverence the sacred to exalt the Lord because that sets the table. Daniel and I were talking this week. I was at a youth retreat and, and the band Leland had played and they were supposed to do a show, right? This is a show. Problem is that Leland is a worship leader. That's who he is. That's what, that's his DNA, right? So people are coming out to see the show and he does his set and he had accidentally set the stage for the preaching of the word. And I turned, I was sitting next to my worship leader at the time. And I said, we need to go right into the word. The atmosphere is ready for the preaching of the word. The worship that that ascended before the Lord set the table for that to happen. Instead, there was somebody else on the program. And they came out and said, you know what? We were kind of hesitant about coming out because we kind of felt like it was ready. Then you should have said, you know what? We're not going on. Or we'll go on after, but right now, the atmosphere of the holy has been created and the people of God are prepared for the word of God. And that's not what happened. Manasseh reigned for 55 years over Israel. He was wicked. Everything, like every piece of description about them. I don't know how tall he was. I don't know the color of hair he was, but you know what I know? That he shut down the temple that he, he elevated idols, he killed his own son. Now imagine if you're his son that's next in line and you've seen him murder your own brother because just, just to cling to power. It says in 2 Kings 21, Ammon, his son, was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was Meshulameth, daughter of Haruz. She was from Jotbah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping the idols his father had worshiped and bowing down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in obedience to him. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah son, his son, king in his place. Man, some of us, man, we couldn't get through eight years of Obama or eight years of Bush. Think about 55 Years of this dude 55 years and they're like you know like King Charles in England that that poor guy right I mean he's like waiting and his mom's like I ain't dying I just ain't dying (laughs) You, you just get used to being called Prince Charles just get used to it just own that So he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, in his 70s, he becomes king. So imagine these people, and they're waiting. It's like, all right, he's been there 25 years. He's going to kick, right? I mean, because most kings, 20 years, 30 years, they're done at best. But this guy just kept going. He's like the Energizer Bunny of wickedness. He just kept going and going and going. And finally, after 55 years, he dies. And they're like, okay, great, we get a new king. And he's just meet the new boss, same as the old boss, just like his daddy. He lasted two years because they would had enough. And the Bible says they assassinated him. They killed him. Imagine, though, the fear that this boy Ammon knew growing up. Imagine how distorted and perverted the relationship that he must have had with his fathers. It was true the early Caesars of Rome. We, we look back in history and we see, like, how did all these lunatics end up leading Rome? How these guys were nuts. They were insane. You know, like, guys like Tiberius, guys like Caligula. How these lunatics end up over Rome? Well, think about this. Think about growing up in a household where your daddy might just push somebody, have somebody pushed off a cliff just for the fun of it or use people for torches to entertain them at their orgies. Imagine that lifestyle. You get a picture of how significant the atmosphere is growing up because you're producing lunatics. When you immerse yourself in wickedness for the sake of self-preservation as these young men had to do, It's very difficult to admit your moral cowardice later on. See, that's why so many people in the church get sucked into stupid ways of thinking by the world. Because we don't want to admit, you know what, I'm just too cowardly to stand up to it. That's a tough thing to go to God and say, Lord, I pray that you give me boldness. Because I'm weak. And I'm not standing back. I'm not pushing back against this stuff like I'm supposed to. And what we instead do is we we start rationalizing. And we start saying, yeah, but you know, there's some good things there. Right? We see the world literally going to hell around us. And we start looking for the silver lining instead of pushing back on what's demonic. Instead of pushing back on what is insane, we just keep our mouth shut. And, and it only took two years for the people of Judah to have enough of this wicked entitled brat. And he was murdered. And, and it kind of brings me to the, the, this next truth. And that is if you don't choose to break the cycle of compromise and rebellion in your life... The only means for God to break it is through consequence. Now, the Bible says that God disciplines those he loves. But it also says that no discipline is, pre- is pleasant at the time. Right? It's like when your daddy said, this is going to hurt me more than you. Right? He's lying to you. He saying it's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt him. Because he'll get over it. <laughs> you'll, you'll, be, you'll be working it off in therapy 20 years later. He, he's he'd like, dad, remember when you did this? He'd, no. Right? He's, he's long since forgotten That's the great thing about dads. We have the capacity to do that just kind of be, I love what one, one writer said, men are like, women are like, and men are like browsers, but men are like single tab browsers and women are like multi tab browsers, right? (laughs) Men, men are dealing with one thing at a time. Men's brain is like a waffle. Women's brain is like spaghetti. Everything touches everything. Men's brain is like, nope. you want to talk about that? We put this away and we're going to come over here and talk about this now, right? One thing at a time. It's just the way we are. It's just the way we are. And so when we get to that place where maybe we're in worship and God is speaking to us, maybe you're in the the preacher's preaching or you're in a Bible study and something just leaps off, it's like the Holy Spirit's like, that's for you. That's for you. What you do at that moment, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, what you do at that moment is critical because it determines whether or not you just voluntarily move into alignment with the heart of God or whether or not God has to use consequence to get you there. See, right after in 2 Kings 22, we read about Josiah. It says he was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adaiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David. Notice, not his great, 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 great grandfather David. Calls him his father David. Because spiritually he walked in line with them. My son's name is David Josiah. He's not named after me. He's named after the, our two favorite kings in Israel. Because this man really had the heart. It's a, he, he followed the ways of his father David... ...not turning aside to the right or to the left. He embodied a powerful truth. There comes a time when we have to reject... ...what we've been told to be... ...and become the people we were created to be. See, he came to power as a boy. Remember we talked about Tutankhamun a, a few weeks ago... ...and how they changed Tutankhamun's name... ...and the priest said, this is what you need to be. Very similar... Here's this 8-year-old boy. He's ascended to the throne. And they're putting in his hand the book of the law and the prophets. They're saying, study this. Every king needs to know that. He was probably a follower of God out of necessity at 8 years old. But fast forward to where he became a man, 25, 26 years old. And he, became, he had a decision to make. In 2 Kings 22, verse 3, it says, In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them, because they are honest in their dealings. Now this is interesting, because he was not a a, a little boy following orders anymore. He He was a grown man. And he had a choice to make to determine who he was going to be for the rest of his life. Now, church here, this power and position and wealth makes that a difficult choice. That's why Jesus said it is so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because all those things want to pull you away. All those things want to make you rationalize your decisions. Power causes you to excuse and justify not following the Lord. You start saying, you know, for the greater good. I'm doing this like my dad said, for the good of my family. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't think for a moment this was an easy decision to make. Josiah had generations and decades of family history pulling him to follow them. But he knew that it takes a man to stand up and say, no more will this infect my house. This will not affect my children. This will not affect my descendants. I'm the line in the sand. Like all kings, Josiah would have studied the the history of the kings that came before him. And in so doing, he would have come across one king in particular that would have gotten his attention. I I guarantee, the Bible doesn't say it, but I guarantee this king would have gotten his attention, would have intrigued him, no doubt about it. And that is the life of a king named Joash. Joash was a young man whose life experiences almost mirrored Josiah's perfectly. He came to the throne at seven years old, only one year difference. He was the son and grandson of kings that the Bible says did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was the son of a wicked king who had come to power just like his dad did at 22 years old and reigned only a short period of time. Getting eerie. Almost exactly the same circumstances. Now, one of the hallmarks of Joash's early reign was that he also rebuilt the temple. And he came to a pivot point in his life, but that's where their stories diverge. See, Joash, when he was young, he was instructed by a priest named Jehoiada. Now, what had happened was when his dad was was killed... He wasn't, and neither, none of his brothers were, elevated to the throne. Athaliah, the queen mother, had them all executed. And here's this little boy, just a, maybe a toddler. And he's hidden away in the temple. He literally grew up. You say, I grew up in the house of God. He literally grew up in the house of God. And when he's seven years old, they pull him out. They declare him king. Athaliah is killed. And so for that time in his life, until he became a man, from, from that age... manhood. The Bible says he did good in the eyes of the Lord as long as he was instructed by the priest, Jehoiada. He was was the pastor's kid, basically. He was raised by a preacher. And when you talk about when you talk about Joash, unfortunately, you want to read a story that's much like Josiah's, but that's not what happened. You read in 2 Chronicles 24. After the death of Jehoiada. So Pastor Jehoiada passes away. The officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. See, before he was listening to the prophet. Before he was listening to the man of God. Now he's listening to politicians. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah, Poles, and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and although they testified against them, they would not listen. Look at this. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, son of who? Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. But they plotted against Him, and by order of the king, they stoned Him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Man, you talk about just wickedness stoned him to death in the house of God. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father Jehoiada had shown him, but killed his son who said as he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. See, Josiah would have looked at that, at, at that generation. Josiah would have, would have looked at what happened. And he made a pivotal decision. He said, not me, not me. Just like Joshua said, as for me... In my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, what's interesting when you read that passage and you read the book of Joshua, Joshua's kind of baiting them. He's kind of like pushing their buttons. I tell people, I may push your buttons, but I didn't install them. <laughs> and he's kind of pushing them. He's like, you know, y'all ain't, you don't have what it takes to follow the Lord. Y'all ain't tough enough. Y'all ain't, you don't have what it takes to run with the Lord. So just go back to your idols ...that you worshipped in Egypt. But as for me... And he says, so choose this day who you'll serve. But as for me and my house... Now, he didn't say... Excuse me. He didn't say, give me 10 minutes. I got to go home and talk to my wife and kids... ...and make sure this is cool with them. He said, as for me and my house... ...we will serve the Lord. Men, I'm going to speak to you right now... ...because... And statistics bear this out. When a child comes to the Lord... ...there's about a 5% chance that the rest of the family will also give their lives to Jesus. When a mom comes to the Lord, that number goes up to 20%. When dad is the first one to come to the Lord, that number goes up to 90%. God has appointed men to stand in a particular place. And you know why I am not preaching. wasn't preaching as hard to women? Because women have not abandoned their position the way men have. Now we see more of it in this generation... But women have not abandoned their position the way men have abandoned the position that God raised us up to occupy. We have a generation of men who have either walked away from what they've been taught or like me, they were never taught it in the first place. We didn't, I didn't know what it looked like to be a godly husband. I didn't know what it looked like to be a godly father. I didn't know what, man, the last thing I thought I would ever, I didn't even know what a pastor really was. I had grown up Catholic and walked away from that as a boy. So I probably thought it was like a priest that could get married. I didn't, I didn't know, you know anything about it. And so we have a generation of young people that know about as much about Jesus as the average person here knows about Islam or Buddhism. They know very, very little. So let me share with you three truths that I glean from these passages here, from looking at these generations. Because where you are in life will determine which of these you need to be focused on implementing. A spiritually successful man will be at different stages in his life called to implement each of these at different times. The first is, what you choose to be when you're young is what you will impart as you get older. People who know me either know me as a pastor or, or, or a picker. A guitar player or a... Because depending on what circle it is. And you know why? Because when I was nine years old, I bought a Fender Telecaster. I still have that thing in my house. hanging up on the wall. I still play that guitar to this day. and And the choices that I made just as a boy determined what I would become later on as a man. Many people just drift into careers because they think, you know, well, I took a job when I was young and this is just sort of, you know, what I'm... I remember an old song by the Talking Heads where he's like, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? And you know why that resonated? Because a lot of people were like, I know what you're saying, man. I know what, I, I, because we get it. Nobody, nobody dreams about, I was just talking to somebody about my grandfather. He, and I've told this story before. He was working on the rail lines. A little guy like me. I just called him Pop. He was an old man by the time I ever knew him. And uh, he was working on the rail lines when the depression hit. He got fired. His foreman always gave him his check, right, at the end of the week. He would get his check from his foreman. But he gets laid off because of the depression. And so he has to go into the headquarters to get his his final check to calculate his hours and all that. So he walks in and they're like, hey, are you the new clerk? Yeah. (laughs) And he did that the rest of his life. He went that afternoon to the library, checked out books on accounting, and did that the rest of his life. Because you just did what you had to do. You just did what you had to do. But that wasn't his dream. That wasn't, you know, he wasn't sitting as a boy going, man, I can't wait to be a clerk for some middle management company, you know, that I... No, that, that wasn't what he dreamed about. He just sort of drifted into it. That's what he became. And a lot of us, that's what happens in life. Now, here's the good news. Life is short. It's temporary. Eternity is long. Don't just drift into who you are going to be for eternity. Because once you take your last breath on this earth, that is fixed. There's no job retraining. That's, that, that is set at that point. See, if you develop the habit of prayer, of worship, of giving, of serving, you'll impart these to your children and to the church generation behind you because you will become a product of your choices and they'll see that. That's why Jesus said a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit constitutionally elementally what it is will be revealed by the fruit that it produces if it's a bad tree it may look healthy but you would see trees all the time that would be rotted inside and they look great but the first windstorm that comes by knocks them down a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit and a good fruit tree doesn't produce bad fruit the combination of your internal composition and your external activity is the equation of your legacy That's what you're leaving behind. I I was looking at a picture. uh, uh, He was just a baby when I knew him. And he put up a picture of himself and his son... and his dad and his grandfather. Now his dad... he's he's passed away. He, He died young. But man, was this guy a lover of Jesus. And he was so passionate to tell people about Jesus Christ. He just loved people. He wanted to see them come to Jesus Christ. His dad... His dad was kind of scary. I'm a new Christian, and his dad was just this older man, just so filled with wisdom. He was intimidating to me. And I was just looking at that picture and saying, God, thank you for sending something that I could look at and know what it's supposed to look like. I may not know yet how to get there, but I know what the end product is supposed to look like because these were men of prayer. They were servants of the Lord, servants of the church. They loved people and they wanted to see people come to Jesus Christ. And it was the inward man and the works, like James says, working together. Try to show me your faith apart from what you do. It's impossible. We're physical beings. We're not saved by our works, but we're created and saved unto good works. Because God not only wants us inwardly transformed, He wants us to reveal His glory outwardly. That's who He is. That's the kind of God he is. The second truth I see here is that you cannot abolish future rebellion against God, but you can foster future obedience to him. I wish that I had like a magic formula that I could tell any parent, if you do this, your child guaranteed will serve the Lord his or her whole life. And I always get back, well, what about train up a child in the way they should go? Look, I know a lot of parents that trained up their children in the house of the Lord. And their children ended up walking away from Jesus Christ. Because Proverbs isn't a book of promises. It is a book of wisdom. And it's saying this is the natural order of things. It also says things, talks about criminals. It says eventually they're going to get messed up. You go down this path, eventually it's going to catch. Now all of us can point to examples. And we can point to exceptions. But this guy got away with it. Well, number one, no, they really didn't. Because there's going to be an ultimate judgment. But we'll point to that as an exception to the rule. Proverbs isn't trying to give you a guarantee. It's trying to give you a pattern. But here's what I can tell you. That while you cannot guarantee your children will never walk away, you can pretty much guarantee that they won't return if they never see any real passion in your life. If they never... If, and I've known so many parents they. They have raised their children, men, You are going to be in church and you're going to do things the right way. And they got all the rules down for them. And as soon as those kids were out the door, they were gone. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus because they got all the rules. They got all the law, but they didn't see any of the passion. They didn't see any real passion driving them on. And, and so I tell people, look, if, if I have made a boatload of mistakes as a parent and as a husband... But you can ask any of my family if they doubt whether I genuinely love Jesus and his church. See, some of us are setting ourselves up for some awkward, a really awkward conversation with Jesus. Right. Imagine Jesus is a huge Taylor Swift fan. I'm just saying imagine. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying, man, he's wearing the T-shirts. Right. He's got the tour shirt on. And you hate Taylor Swift. And you're like, <clears throat> this is awkward, right? You ever, you ever, like, come up, hey, you like football? And they're like, all decked out and, mm, no, not really, man. Like from that point on. So, <clears throat> nice day, <laughs> all right? Let me tell you what Jesus is passionate about. He's passionate about a church. He didn't leave children behind. He didn't leave business behind. He didn't leave bank accounts behind. But he left a church behind. He created the church. He birthed the church. He said, there's a fire to be, and I wish it was already kindled. He's looking forward to the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, and tongues of fire come down on the people of God, and the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost. And he says, I wish it was already kindled. He was so passionate. He was so zealous. He called the church his bride. And it's the only thing that he's coming back for. And some of us have this apathetic view of it. And it's going to set up you up for a real awkward conversation when you stand in the presence of the Lord because one of the things that I knew, when God called me into ministry, like I said, I knew nothing about ministry. I didn't grow up enamored in it. I didn't see preachers go, oh, that's what I want to be. I would, made, I would have probably been making fun of a guy like me. I tell people all the time, I used to be cool. Once upon a time, I really was cool. Right? I had long hair. I dressed cool. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Now I'm like, here, dad, like you're a grandpa. You're a preacher. You're like the most uncool thing ever. <laughs> okay, and I get it, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. When I came... To that place of my calling, that pivot point, that decision point of what I'm going to do with my life. God birthed in me a love for his church. I just love, I don't always love church, but I love the church. I love the mission of God. I love the purpose of God. I love, you know, we, we had a Bible study and man, we were, we were getting a little bit tense because everybody wasn't in agreement. And I'm like, man, I love this so much better than the Bible studies where everybody's just like, yeah, and everybody's playing it safe. You ever been in that? And they're all just playing in real school and they're always playing it real safe. And I'm like, here it's getting a little unsafe because we're not all in agreement. And when you're not all in agreement, it forces you to step back and say, is what I believe right? It forces you to get into God's word and say, God, is this what you're teaching? Or, or is this, or is this something I've just kind of accumulated along the way? See the real church, the church at Jesus' birth. It's humbling. It's a, it's a place where God shapes us and He disciplines us. And sometimes, like we just sang, we suffer alongside of Jesus Christ because the end result is we're being made like Him. We're being made in His image. He wants I can't even imagine how much God wants. He's our Father to give us a glorious welcome into His kingdom. He wants everything. Paul warns us, like, don't be like the guys that just like slink in and barely make it in. And we're like, the, you know, I'm thinking of St. Peter with his book. And he's like, mmm. Hmm, I guess so. (laughs) I don't want that to be my entrance into the kingdom. I want it glorious because that's what the Bible says that God desires. A a glorious and rich welcome. Like hugs all around, high fives. Man, the person that was even your enemy. You'll see him and if he made it in, be like, you'll be high. We made it. Can you believe that? We got in some stupid arguments and everything. Now we're both here because that's the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. And here's another truth. Who you are in Christ isn't determined by the legacy you receive. Praise God for that. Because you may have come out of a situation like me where you didn't see it model. But here's the the kind of the scary thing about that. I know a family and they were very, very close. And they would kind of boast about how close their family was. But upon further review, there was some really messed up stuff about them. They would, like somebody married into the family and they did something they didn't like, they'd run them down, they'd backbite. And they would brag and they would boast about, look, we had this family reunion, all these people showed up. And I'm like, cults do that too. That doesn't necessarily mean health. They would jump around from church to church. They would run down pastors. They would run down churches. Nobody was right if they didn't walk in alignment with what they thought was right. They walked into the church to be the critic not to be the servant, not to look for Jesus, not to look for people that they could bless and minister to, not to look for people that they could encourage, but they walked in to look for what was wrong. And they went all over the place and didn't really, and so their relationships all became about just their family, and they pushed everybody else away. See, what we have to recognize is that if my kids are my life, if my spouse is my life, and I've seen people do that, they end up wondering, who am I when they're not there anymore? People end up becoming widows or widowers, and they don't know who they are. Their kids grow up and they move off, and they become clingy and they try to run their kids' lives. They try to tell them what to do, even when they're adults with their own kids. This is how you should, because they don't know who they are. You doubt me, go watch a baseball game. Right? We see stories of people beating up umpires. I'm like, this is a little league baseball game, man. What is wrong with you? Because they're, they're just trying to vicariously live through their kid's life because they drifted into their life and they're not happy with who they are. The truth about leaving a legacy is ironically, you have to almost forget about leaving a legacy to do it. We sing the song, though none go with me, still I will follow. Just like, just like in, in, that, in the book we just talked about, Joshua was saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You have to make a decision that, you know what, even if my wife rejects this, even if my children reject this, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said the end result of following him will often mean division, even among the closest family members. There would be division between father and son and mother and daughter and father-in-law and and son-in-law. And he said, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And we don't like that. That doesn't sound very Christ-like. And I always love pointing out to people that if Jesus said it, it's Christ-like because he's Christ. I mean, this stands the reason. Just because we don't like it, just because it upsets us. But Jesus never lied to us. He said, look, this is going to happen. Maybe it doesn't happen to you. Maybe you've been blessed. But it's going to happen to a lot of people where their family members are not going to choose to walk the road that they're walking. And if you want your children to return to that walk at some point, and sometimes there's, there's moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas that pray for years and years and even decades. And they go on and, and they join the great cloud of witnesses and it's a long time before that young person ever receives the Lord Jesus Christ. They never see it in their own lifetimes. But they keep praying. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. If you want to leave a trail for your children to follow, ironically, it must be a trail that you're willing to travel alone. I, jo, look, <laughs> Joshua, by the way, whose name was Yeshua, which was the same as Jesus. He's a precursor. He's, he's, he's in the place of the prophetic leader over the people of God. And he didn't take a poll. He didn't ask for consensus. He didn't ask what everybody around thought of him. And just like Jesus, when you read John chapter 6, Jesus hits them with a hard teaching, and they all leave. Now fortunately, Joshua, or Joshua had a desert between him and Egypt. But he may very well with his words have driven everybody away and back to Egypt. He didn't know when he spoke them. He didn't know what the reaction was going to be. He believed in his heart. Look, guys, I've been hanging with you for 40 years. There's nothing about you that makes me think that you're going to follow the Lord. And in a lot of ways, he was right. Because after his generation passed off the earth, the people descended, the next book is Judges, and they descended into this roller coaster of abandoning the Lord and worshiping idols, and then God would raise up a deliverer for them, and they would, okay, great, we'll follow the Lord because we're getting blessed, and as soon as the blessings hit, they went back. And it was just over and over and over. And the theme of that book is, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. That's the theme of the book of Judges over and over and over. Here's the good news. Do you know that the last great revival happened in this country exactly 28 years ago? Father's Day, 1995 in Brownsville. I talked about this a little while ago. Brownsville, Florida, over a million people. New York Times wrote about it. Time Magazine wrote about it. Over a million people came to these services. Somebody said, I was in one of them. And I imagine the people who were there for Father's Day, they probably had lunch appointments. They probably had things on their agenda that they were planning to do after church. God said, nope, cancel your plans. I'm about to do something that I haven't done in decades, probably since Azusa Street in 1906. I'm going to pour out my spirit and I'm going to draw people back. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Pastors were getting saved. People would come from different, different churches just to see what was going on, to see what they could bring back. And they discovered, I'm not really following Jesus Christ. I'm not really born again. I, got, I drifted into the ministry, but I'm not really serving Him. The generation that precedes the coming of His Son, we talked about this a few weeks ago too, was in the book of Malachi. And the last words that God spoke before, I mean, the next event, if you, you go chronologically, From the book of Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. And the next great event was the coming of John the Baptist. That was the next great spiritual event... ...which preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. His baptism and His ministry. And I want us to to listen again to these words in Malachi... ...because the Bible says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. And Jesus said that, that John had the spirit of Elijah... Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. I believe that God wants to raise up men that the next generation can look to. I'm wondering in this church, because I'm new here, so I'm wondering who are the men that if a young man like me walked in the doors, who, is, who are the men that God would put in their sight that God would put right in front of them, that put right in their way, that they can't go around them and say, this is who you need to look at. Because I believe that God is calling people to rise up and say, I will be a spiritual mother or I will be a spiritual father to those that don't have it. We have a generation of people at our doors and we have one of two choices. We can either kind kind of lock the doors metaphorically close ourselves in here. Somebody came up to me this morning and said, hey, I just wanted you to know I found a bunch of syringes out front of the church. Somebody was using drugs last night out front of the church. They just don't know. They're lost. Nobody has ever taught them. No one has ever communicated them. And I believe that God wants to raise up people that the next generation can see and see Jesus in them. And I believe specifically that God wants to touch the hearts of men to be worthy examples of imitation. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet right here because I believe that God is always looking for a way because this is just who He is. God does not take any joy or any glee in in condemnation or judgment. God always looks for a way. God always warns people how to avoid judgment. And that day I believe... When we, can, when we can rescue people from judgment, will come when men return to the place of godly headship in their home that the Bible calls them to. You know what's sad? Is I don't know how many conversations I've had with men where it's all about they want the headship part. Well, my wife doesn't respect me. She doesn't listen to me. She doesn't submit to me. Have you modeled what that looks like? See, you want the, go- you want the headship, but you don't want the godly part. You don't want to model it. You just want the fruit of it. I ministered for 17 years in the least churched area of the United States. Plenty of, plenty of liberal people just spiritually, politically, philosophically walking in the doors of the church. And you know what I never saw? I never spoke to a single woman, not even once. I ministered to very many very educated women, career women, very, uh, many women that were on the what we would call the left politically. I never met one, even once, who said, you know what, my husband prays for me and my children every day. He gets us up on Sunday to go to church. He is always in his word. He is always covering this family, and I hate it. Never met one. See, when men will rise up and say, I will cover my family. Protect them spiritually man. I've had a little guy like me. I've had times where I've walked to And some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about You walk through the hallways of your home and you just feel something's like there's a presence there Something has come against your home. You know what my response is? demon are you lost? Or are you just stupid? Because I am covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been given authority to cover this home and to protect this home. And I will stand And Not only do I pray for you to exit this home, I pray the Lord to torment you for being so foolish as to come across the path of one of his children and determine that you're going to try to oppress my house and my family. You're crazy, son. And it's not my power, it's not my might. It's him. He has given us the authority. He is just waiting for us to walk in it. Come on, let's pray. Father God, right now, I just, I just give your spirit absolute liberty. Not that you need it from me, but Lord, I know that you wait to be invited in. And so Lord, we just invite you into this ministry, this, this service, this family. And we pray, have your way, God. I pray that you have your way over every household. I pray that you have your way over every life. Even those that are just visiting. Even those that are on the fence. Reveal your love for them. Reveal your plan for them. Reveal your heart to bless them and their homes and their lives. Lord God Almighty, speak in this place, we pray. I want to ask right now, if you're willing to follow in the example and the spirit of Joshua. Get before God, come down to this altar and kneel before him and just say to the Lord, he's going to hold you accountable. So I'm looking for people who've really got the guts to take the challenge. Kneel before him and say, as for me and my house starts with me, but as for me and over everything that you've given me, everything that you've blessed me with, we will serve the Lord. This prayer seems going to minister for just a few seconds, but I believe that God would be honored if we would kneel before Him, men and women alike, say, God, over myself and everything You've placed under my authority, I place it under the authority of King Jesus. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We worship You, God.